Watching my fellow Americans with your host, Spike. Collins. Yes, yes, it's me. It's me. Thank you so much. Keep clapping. Clap for the miracle. How would we know that you wanted the miracle if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am. Literally, Spike Cohen. Thank you again for joining me tonight, uh, June the... I don't even know what day it is. June the 26th, two days before my birthday. Thank you again for joining us. This is our last episode for Gay Pride Month. And so I'd just like to close out by telling all of my LGBT followers just how proud I am of you. You did it. Great job. Guys, this is a Muddied Waters media production check us out on facebook on youtube on instagram on anchor more on that later on twitter on periscope and itunes and google play everywhere go on the entire internet muddy waters media check us out give us five star reviews everywhere and share this video right now the last thing i want is for your closest friends neighbors and loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour-long libertarian podcast on a wednesday night so be sure to give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. This program is brought to you by Anchor FM. I will be plugging that later, roughly halfway through the, through the show, hopefully at a really inappropriate moment for, for everyone involved. Uh, the intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans is from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That is J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook and on SoundCloud. Go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. Give him all every bit of money that it requires to buy his entire discography. It's like $15. You'll be so happy. Uh, an entire night of amazing music. Thank you again to Mr. Joe Davi. I'd like to thank Nestle for this delicious Canadian water that I'm drinking because I'm in Canada. That is good Canadian water. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and as always. Guys, before I introduce my guest tonight, I just want to talk again about a really cool initiative that's being undertaken by uh, and co-sponsored by Muddy Waters Media and Stateside Cava Bar down in Tampa Bay, Florida, called Operation P.O. Box. It's a really cool thing. We are helping. Uh, so apparently in Florida, uh, there's a huge homeless problem. And in order for the homeless to get jobs, they have to have an ID. Well, it's hard to get an ID without an address. And it's hard to get an address without a job. And it's hard to get a job without an ID. And it's just sort of this vicious cycle. So what we're doing for them with Operation P.O. Box, we're actually uh, getting P.O. Boxes for them. Um, and that way they're able to get an ID and get a job. Also, we will, with their permission, uh, we will publish their uh, P.O. Boxes so that people can uh, mail them donations like uh, 
they can mail money, they can mail, well, probably not money, don't give them money, but they can, you can mail gift cards, you can mail clothing, you can mail notes of encouragement, job offers, whatever you want to mail them, and uh, and that's really cool. So Operation P.O. Box, uh, if you want to make, uh, we're still really getting started right now, uh, we're in, in the early stages, um, so we'll soon have P.O. Boxes to share with people. In the meantime, if you wanted to make a donation, you can do so uh, by sending donations through PayPal to Operation P.O. Box at gmail.com. If you have any other questions, feel free to uh, inbox us uh, on whatever you're listening to or watching this on. Uh, or you can email us at muddiedwatersoffreedom at gmail.com uh, and, uh, for more information on that. So without further ado, guys, I'm really whelmed to introduce my guest tonight. Uh, he is a former arch nemesis of mine and Matt's. Really of Matt's, and I got sucked into it. But now we're totally friends for some reason. I'm uh, really not 100% sure what that was all about. But he is a political operative and author who has worked for the Young Americans for Liberty and on various political campaigns. He's also the author of Stay Away from the Libertarians. And he will soon be releasing his new book, How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to my fellow Americans, Mr. Remzo Martinez. Remzo, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Jew. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. You know, Interna- inter- many international people wondered Jew. whether or not this would happen. You're going to cut me off right now. You're going to start cutting me off immediately. I knew this was a bad idea, but you see, this is what you do. You extend the hand of friendship out and they smack you every yep. time. Look every at history. Time. Thank yep. you for having me on, Spike. It's a pleasure to be with you. I am so happy to have you on. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to say that I have no idea as to why we were enemies. I'm not 100% sure how or when that even ended. Me neither. I... It was just kind of weird. I just kind of tend to attack first and love later. It's a really twisted thing in my chemically imbalanced brain. But, you know, it just worked for a little while. And we're in the love cycle. So I do accept your apology, and I'm glad that we could move on from that. Uh, and, guys, be sure to comment with your questions and thoughts. And Remzo and I will tell you if you are right or wrong. Now, Remzo, the first question that I ever asked new guests to my show uh, is how do you, would you say you reached your political beliefs? Would you say that was an aha moment, sort of a gradual evolution? Tell, tell us about that. A- absolutely. Um, you know, it was definitely gradual from when I first started questioning whether or not everything was okay in our beautiful American society, where I am now. And now right. I'm looking for a, you know, a doomsday bunker out in the Midwest. You know, things have definitely gradually changed but it all really started for me back in 2012 i tend to consider myself mitt romney's worst volunteer you see before i could knock on a single door make a phone call look cute like a young latino boy would for a republican i realized wow this guy sounds like obama he sounds like just a really white rich obama right and then i did what i you know, experience of many women later as I became an adult, I got, you know, I, I, I ghosted the Mitt Romney campaign. And uh, from there, I started learning about this guy named Ron Paul, heard of the strange dude, Gary Johnson, who said he was a librarian or something on the news. And everything from there just got strange. And, you know, years later, here I am talking to you. Nice. Which is, I mean, really, here's the reality. You know, you've arrived when you're speaking to a Jew in his basement. And that's really... I mean, it really is like that's that's there's different levels. And the top level is conversing online with a, a random Jew. It's like the reverse and Frank, you're in a basement and we're talking to the world. So <laughs> that's a yes, that is how we're going to start this show. And Frank jokes. Absolutely. So, OK, cool. So I've done extensive research on you. 
which I've written on this here post-it note. Let me take a look here. Okay. Then you sophisticated. Are, so it says that you are a Mexican. What's that like? It's all right, I guess. Is there what, what like I what mean, kind I'm, of, I'm, I'm on this side of the wall, so I can't complain. Too that's much. a good point. That is a good point. Now, if you had to describe what kind of Mexican you are, what, what, what would what would that be? Apparently, we're Puerto Ricans. Ah. So, you know, we have to cross, you know, a gulf instead of a river, which means that we really deserve to be in this country. But apparently we're also American citizens. And if you live on the islands, you don't have to pay taxes. But the downside is the island sucks. So. But does it? Yeah. It does, but OK, but, it, but it, 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 here's what I know about Puerto Rico from my extensive time of being there on vacation. You have the bioluminescent beaches. You have really good food you have the mofongo the oh, word I... the word hurricane Oop. originates the word barbecue also originates from there so those really those four things alone i mean what's what's the problem what's the problem on the island murder crime poverty no electricity the basics ah i mean you know we're above you know what some would deem a shithole so we're doing okay. pretty well okay. but you know at least we're better than mexicans yes that's what we're also going with so okay good so we've established that uh now you worked on you worked with young americans for liberty as i mentioned before you worked on i believe the nick freitas campaign i assume i've said that name wrong uh is it is it freitas free freitas freitas oh freitas nailed it uh you've worked on other Perfect. efforts as well how would you say those experiences have influenced what appears to be a level of cynicism about politics that you seem to be exuding? Well, since I quit all that, I'm a recovering alcoholic. So, you know, that kind of makes it a little bit better. But uh, in, in all seriousness, I mean, po politics is a blood sport. Yeah. And we, we tend to have this very uh, contorted old fashioned view of how politics in America should be. But the very, very sad truth is that politics in America has never been clean. It's never been friendly and it's not any worse or better now than it ever has been. If anything, I think we're just a bit more honest with each other. It used to be that if you're going to go out and say you hate someone, you better be making money. Now yeah. no one's making money from it, which, you know, coming from a, professional standpoint i think is very very poor marketing if you're going to call somebody a racist you might as well put a fundraising link at the bottom of the screen right but um you know it gets to the point where everyone has to ask what is the cost of success if you lose yourself in the process and what i have experienced as so many other political operatives is a, a very fundamental question what does winning look like because are you just going the pay, you know, are just going the paces that you knew more, you normally do. Do you just run from campaign to campaign to campaign? Right. What happens when you start, you know, actually making policy? Do you just forget about all of that? There seems to be a class of American political, um, how, how do I put them? They're, they're the, I won't, I won't call them the elite because that, that gives a lot of them too much credit. They're just, um, politically fallible while thinking they're politically affluent. But you have a lot of people that just don't want this to end. They don't want to make decisions and policies that actually help people. They don't want to actually listen to other people across the aisle. They don't want to do things that would in any way devolve power from themselves to regular people. So I had to ask myself, is this a lifestyle that I want to live in? And 
you know, it got to the point where I was like, no, this isn't the life I was going to live. And around that point, I discovered that um, in November of 2018, there were several other friends of mine who were in the same career field that also reached the same conclusions and they left. Now, am I saying that all politics everywhere is just bad and you should leave? I'm not necessarily saying that, but what we all do is we all go our own length and we're all going to encounter that day and time where we have to ask, have we have we fallen too far into it to the point where we could never leave this life? And that was essentially the overall premise of my book. How far is someone willing to succeed in politics at the cost of their own life? Fair enough. Now, to be fair, I have very strict show notes and we're not talking about your book yet. No, we can, we can do it however we want to do it. <laughs> uh, the, uh, but, but first I want to talk about your first book. So, uh, you wrote uh, "Stay Away from the Libertarians." When what year did you write that? Twenty eighteen. Oh, okay. So it was la- okay. It was last year. So you're just a prolific book writer, then. I have no life. So you're a prolific, a prolific book writer. That's the that's the nicer way of saying you have no life. Absolutely, you're so okay. kind. Prolific. Most people would just say anything else but yeah that works i try to say nice things um so in your in your description you say that this book uh stay away from the libertarians which i love i love this title no one's going to hear you right now by the way because we're on the wrong scene and no one's going to hear you but they can hear you now and uh anyway in that uh in that book it says that it debunks the myths misconceptions and outright lies thrown at libertarians ranging from the idea that votes can be stolen to the radical notion that you own yourself now was this sort of now you were working on libertarian and Republican campaigns or just on Republican campaigns or, or how was that working? I'm a bit of a whore. I worked for anyone who could pay and some people who wouldn't pay because I just wanted the fun. Uh, you know, the, the big thing that a lot of people within this Liberty sphere tend to understand is that your alliances are loose and your friendships are fleeting. So you might as well go where you think you're going to go ahead and make the maximum impact. Um, you know, I've been a Republican, I've been independent, I've been a libertarian. It's all about where you think you're going to go ahead and make the best impact on other people's lives. And when it came to this book, you know, for years, we allowed many people to go ahead and tell our story for us. And most of the time, it was never accurate. It got to the point where essentially, I was sitting down one day watching the news. And I was like, you know, motherfucker, if you're going to go ahead and insult me, at least be accurate about it. Because there are some very valid points you could use to make to attack me, you might as well go for the facts and not for some outright lies. Right. So yeah, so stay away from the libertarians basically runs on that premise of, you know, what are these lies that these lazy politicians, these bullshit academics and these fake news media types and loony politicians like what are they using to attack us with that's created this anti-libertarian narrative throughout the country and what's the truth because i think a lot of libertarians aren't necessarily even armed with the facts on their side most of the time they're playing from defense when in fact they should be playing offense so my book covers those points and uh i, I take it from a bit of a autobiographical type of layout because these are questions and these are stereotypes that i had to encounter the further i got into politics very good. Yeah. And w- so far, we actually we have a comment from Lindsay Nicole. She says, I like this guy so far anyway. So you are on thin ice with Lindsay Nicole. You're on a probationary period. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, it's 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 kind of crazy because it seems like you have one of two choices. And I noticed this in your second book, which, again, we're not talking about yet. But the the uh, it's you sort of have one of two choices if you're in the liberty sphere in electoral politics you can 
mount a very principled campaign and lose really bad. Or you can sacrifice your everything, principles, morals, anything that made you resemble who was a person that someone would love and possibly win, maybe 50-50 on winning uh, and, and sort of lose yourself in the process. Do you think in the... And I know we're not a democracy, we're a republic, whatever. Do you think in our democratic style of, of electing people, do you think that there's actually a way to not sell yourself out and be principled and win in any real way? Or do you think it's just, that's just baked into the cake? So I, I want to go ahead and break this down into two points. I want to cover the, the first uh, statement you made, whereas if you run as a big L libertarian, you're going to run a principal campaign and just get completely smashed in the process. And if you run in one of the two major parties, you're going to end up selling out at some point. Well, um, or, 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 met- or, or, or if you run as I was thinking, yes, as a big L libertarian or even as a liberty a Liberty Republican or a hardcore constitutionalist Republican. I, I, I don't think anything is necessarily mutually exclusive. I think that once your name is on the ballot and you start giving stump speeches, you're going to encounter these problems regardless. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. When okay. I first started off in a, you know, in, I call it podcast journalism, so to speak back in 2016, 2017, I had a guest on my show who was a prolific journalist over in Canada. She's since kind of, gone into hiding because of some issues over there with the press in Canada. But she, uh, she made some statements about Islam on my show. Now I I don't tend to really touch certain topics. I don't talk about religion much. I don't cover foreign affairs. And when it comes to, you know, certain gender issues, it's just not nothing I really talk about. It's not that I don't have an opinion. It's just that it's not really my wheelhouse. So I allowed her to make the statement because you know, she needs to make a point. And I, I deeply believe that conversation isn't a cosign. So you can have conversations with people and just talk. You don't have to agree with anything. But right. I had this one libertarian candidate who was running for House of Delegates in Virginia who was going to come on my show the next day say that because because I had her on my show and I didn't disagree with something she said or stop her on something she said or something that I don't even quite remember, um, I was – in essence, advocating for what she said and that he wanted nothing to do with me because I would make him look bad. Now, for the record, I was the only person, I was no one at the time, the only type of media figure within the state of Virginia that had the ears of voters in my district that uh, reached out to him. So he played the PC card very fast. But, you know, we've had libertarian candidates. We've had uh, small L libertarians whatever title you want to call yourself these problems always turn up i had a candidate during my first race um the secretary of the state libertarian party donated fifty dollars and said you guys are running a crap republican light campaign if you want this money to keep coming you better do what i want you to do and i was like motherfucker that's not enough money i need to (laughs) i i need to be bought and wooed a bit more than just 30 bucks a month Right. And uh, I mean, people think they could throw that at you. And, you know, I do know some campaigns where they were like, oh, $30 a month. Oh, OK, because they sucked. But yeah, um, you're not you know, getting politics, anywhere with that kind of money. Yeah. 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 I mean, politics, um, you know, it's it, it treats everyone the same. It hates you. So I think regardless of party, regardless of seat, regardless of ideology, um, you know, the, the problems are the same. What do you do when you're tempted with taking a shortcut? What right. do you do when you can turn a blind eye to something what do you do when someone offers you 
a really good deal in exchange for you to make a decision that the people that put you in power don't want you to make. Um, you know, these are decisions that people have been dealing with since the beginning of time. And regardless of partisan stripe, decade or person, everyone has to encounter these and they have to confront them in their own way. And in that same vein, why would you say, why do you think libertarians, especially very principled libertarians, tend to lose elections? And how much personal responsibility do you take for that? Um, I split it into kind of two spheres. I look at, I call it the rules of the game. And I think we need to admit that the rules of the game are typically rigged against us. It's primarily when we're looking at federal offices. When it comes to state level seats, it's very easy to get on the ballot. But when it comes to federal offices, such as House of Representatives or U.S. Senate, it can become extremely difficult to even, you know, make that barrier to entry. And then I think what we need to understand is that regardless to whether or not you're in a very red district or a very blue district, you're dealing with people that don't understand libertarian worldview at right, all. Right. Let's just really consider this. Nobody was born a libertarian, nonetheless became a libertarian until they were probably much older. Yeah. I think millennials are a bit different of a case because I was 17, for example, when I started first learning about libertarian principles. And there are many people around my age demographic that got it when they were in their mid to late teens. So this is more of a recent thing we're seeing, but it probably won't be much of an effect in electoral politics for another generation. Or right, two. exactly. So, yeah. yep. so by dealing with that thing, I mean, how can you tell people that they're slaves when they don't even understand that? I mean, I think we're dealing with just the fact that, you know, just the rules of the game are rigged, but the people that are supposed to be on our side, the people that we're supposed to be advocating for us, I mean, the people that we're supposed to be advocating for, they don't even know what we're talking about. It's almost like a different language entirely. It, it, yes. So I think yes. in that sense, you know, you're you're kind of you're kind of doomed. Yeah, it, you can try really hard, but you know, you're, you're it's always going to be uphill. You're always starting at at a disadvantage, regardless. Yeah. yeah, it is a it is a it, it that's a good way of describing it. It is sometimes you'll say something to someone and they'll go, "I don't even understand what you just said," and it's like literally you're speaking another language to them. Now, what is your least favorite thing about Matt? His face. It's yeah. just. Yeah, I know just, it's, it's 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 Matt face. No, I know, I know. Like he's a good person, but his face hurts the eyes of children. Yeah, as yeah. I've been told. Yeah, yeah. He's the opposite. So when you have people and they're like, "Well, yeah, she's heavy, but she's got a pretty face," he's kind of the exact opposite of that. A beautiful personality can only make for so much. There's ugly people, then there are painful people to look at. Yeah, I'd say my least favorite thing i don't like the fact that he removed the giant cyst from his head um i was enjoying watching it that gave him so much character it was it was the thing right and like i didn't know i thought that was just his thing like he just had a mat horn or something and i'm like cool i'm co-hosting a show with a guy with like a new like a twin a conjoined twin from inside or something something and then then i thought he was was a -a make-a-wish kid survivor and (laughs) And then he's like, oh, no, it's a system having it removed. And I'm like, well, do they have to? And he said no. And I'm like, oh, so it's so all about you. That. Yeah. Oh. It was all about him. What a selfish, selfish little man. It's Folks, just- he's also 5'5". Five five, so he's got that little Putian complex going, too, which is just not working for him. Yeah, it was – I just – I just you could be this. short or you can be painful to look at, but when you're both, you have to decide which one you want to fix. And you've lost your distraction, and it's, you know, 
It's sad. It's, it's like, sad. oh, it's smooth now. You're a midget, and you're painful to look at. It's very sad. But I'll tell you what isn't sad, guys. Anchor FM. If you're looking to make a podcast, Anchor is the easiest way. I know you know what this is like. Uh, Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Uh, Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use from your phone or your computer. It has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast. So it sounds great. Uh, It also will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all the different things that puts them everywhere. And you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. And that is a real thing that exists. So you can definitely do that. If you are interested in doing so, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started and let us know and we'll follow you and you better damn well follow us too. Now, speaking of podcasts on Anchor FM, you have a podcast on Anchor FM, right? The Remzo Martinez Experience. Tell us about that. So originally back in 2016, I realized one day I was broke and very opinionated. So I might as well find a way to make money off opinions. And quite frankly, I didn't want to go work at Dairy Queen like some of my friends. So my brother, Ryan, who was my roommate at the time, I looked at him and I said, I know how to talk very well. And, you know, computers and I don't know crap about computers. Let's start a podcast. So we started a podcast in our dorm. It was called uh, originally the Remso Republic. And it went from just me bullshitting with people to being uh, eventually, I think it was in the year 2017, number 25 in news and politics on iTunes in North America. So things got real hot and heavy for a minute. And then everything else has just uh, been crazy since because of that show we've had um you know opportunities to do spin-off documentaries i did a documentary about nick freitas called american statesman and nick freitas story we did a bunch of spin-offs so to speak we did a series called haunted republic which eventually got picked up as a tv show called the witching hour which we're filming for season two right now and in um january of 2019 i brought back the co- the podcast after about a six month hiatus and rebranded as the Remsa Martinez experience. So that way we could take all these crazy stories and stuff that we encounter and just kind of move past politics, just attack life in general. Yeah. I saw where you were trying to, uh, I, I watched, listened to the one where you were explaining why, um, OJ Simpson, uh, was more trustworthy than, uh, well, you specifically, you called out Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but really than any politician. Well, why, 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 why are you saying it like you wouldn't choose OJ over AOC? Yeah, no, I, it was a compelling, after I listened, I'm like, yeah, I mean, he did, he only murdered two people. And I mean, and he was good to his kids. And he was good to his kids. He was good. He was a good dad to his kids. His kids love him. You know, he went to jail for getting his own stuff back. The way I see it, he was a political prisoner at that point. I, it, it, he truly was. Everyone was what so was mad. His crime, being a black man in America. Yeah, that really was what it was. He was a black guy with uh, with a nice car, and they went, "No, you go to jail for that." Listen, I, you, you go to jail for getting your own stuff and serve like a, the maximum sentence on good behavior. They, they're that's. That white America was mad he got away with murdering their favorite white woman that they didn't know until she was murdered. And it, you know, changed my mind. Everyone becomes a saint after they're dead. That's why I attacked John McCain <laughs> when he died. This was her fault. Okay. So yeah, no, after listening, I was like, you know what? I'd vote for him. I love that he's on Twitter. And um that makes me infinitely happy. And uh and, and this is why I do it, folks. I do it because I'm a man of the people. Yeah, no, I, I definitely got that vibe. I definitely got that vibe. So we are now going to talk about your book, 
we are now allowed to talk about your book. I'm going to show it again. No one's going to hear you. No one's going to hear you. How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship. Now, confession time. I only got about a third of the way through your book. I told you I'd read the whole thing. Instead, I ended up doing like stuff my wife told me needed to be done today. So I did. I got about a third of the way through the book. Um, but I think I have a pretty decent grip on, on where you were going with it. I'm sure I'm going to I'm gonna finish reading it, and I'm sure I'm going to absolutely love it. And, and I don't want to give away too much anyway, but tell us about the book and, uh, and, and tell us about how your, I guess, how your experiences fed into, well, tell us about the book. I don't want to give away too much. Yeah, so essentially the book is one, one of the most, like how do I put it? This book covers the questions that people have been asking themselves for generations. How far are you willing to go to succeed if you lose yourself in the process? And I use the realm of politics in order to really kind of express that. So what I wanted to do originally, I wanted to do a bit of a tell-all book about my time as a political consultant. But what I didn't want to do was I didn't want to get too down and emotional, like in the weeds of it, so to speak, and just turn into a bitch fest. So I thought... How do I take the lesson I'm trying to tell people and make it in a way which is compelling and informative and engaging and actually makes them ask these questions? So the book is about two people. One is a fictional character that takes place in modern times named Art Brown. He's a political consultant who uh, works for a couple successful people. And the moment he thinks he's going to go ahead and ride that chariot of fame and power over to dc he finds himself kicked back on his ass and figuring out what to do and what he ends up doing is working for some not so trustworthy people and in the meantime between our story i have a uh, historic element a non-fiction element about one of i think probably the the most influential politicians the, perhaps the most influential political loser of the 20th century and villain of the civil rights movement um, George Wallace. Yeah. And I, I chose George Wallace specifically because if you want to look at probably the closest thing to the American version of a Greek tragedy, George Wallace really does embody that because here you have a person who grew up in the sticks, yep. who grew up amongst African Americans, who was a progressive judge, who was endorsed by the NAACP the first time he ran for governor, who yep. ends up being the guy who's known as the most strident, hardcore segregationist in America. Now, the thing is, we don't get to choose how history looks at us. And in terms of Wallace, we remember him as being that villain. But the thing that people don't often understand is that there was a life after 1963. And the life George Wallace led was way more complicated than anyone could ever imagine. And he ended up dying, what I believe to be a very different person. So what I do is I basically try and take the veneer off of politics, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street style parties we tend to think go on. And I really let people know, you know, what happens to the losers, what happens to the people who are, you know, down and out and what happens when they have to choose between finding success by any means necessary and finding their humanity. Yeah. It was very cool. Uh, I, I, it's, it's interestingly enough, it was uh, less than a year ago that I first I knew George Wallace. I knew his story as, you know, once he was a prominent name in the 60s, we all know that the, the, you know, famous segregation now, se- segregation then, segregation now, segregation forever, and, um, or segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation t- forever. He was, he wasn't just a main villain in the segregation, you know, pro-segregation side. 
he was the face and and now especially historically is the first person people think of if they're you know intimately knowledgeable about that time when they think about you know the anti-civil rights movement the people that wanted to keep it that way and yet you know i learned last year like you said he was a progressive judge he uh called out people who you know uh 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 uh, uh, people in his court who were disrespectful to black people he was incredibly not just anti-racist but a progressive anti-racist and not just an anti-racist, but also, I mean, he was in many ways the 1960s version of the closest you could get to a Bernie Sanders or an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or, or, you know, when you think these sort of, you know, that's probably one of the best ways to describe him. I, I haven't put it that way, but you're absolutely spot on about that. Like he was as progressive and by that I mean way more progressive than you would expect a successful politician to be in 1950s and 1960s Alabama. Um, was that, it wasn't Arkansas. It was Alabama, right? Alabama. Yeah, yeah. Alabama. Yeah, and 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 for him to then, for essentially for political reasons, to morph into oh, let, let let's not confuse it. They were a hundred percent political reasons. Yeah. And that's the scary thing, yeah. because this wasn't a man that did things by accident. He was an incredibly intelligent person. He did everything intentionally. And that's the terrifying thing about it. That is cynical as hell. That is the equivalent, if we're going back to Anne Frank, that is the political equivalent of someone who starts off as like, you know, a half Jewish anti-Nazi politician. And by the time the thing's done, he's one of the people helping craft the final solution. Like it's that... It's not obviously not that extreme in terms of, of outcome, but it's that extreme in terms of going from being the fighter on this side to being the fight, being the head of the fighting on this, on the opposite side entirely for politics, like literally just to win politically. If you want to talk about, you know, selling your soul to win elections, that's as, that is as, as, as it wasn't, he didn't change his mind about these things. He just did it for, to win, just to win elections. Yeah. And sadly, this is something that people were doing before him. And this is what people were doing after him. It's what people are doing now. The difference is the lens in which we look at people and history. I mean, here's here's a strange thing about immortality. It's all in history and it's all about who's telling it. And with George Wallace, like he did some good things for people. But we never talk about those no. because if you do that, then what are you? You're 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 all these terrible things. Right. We can't look at history objectively. But sadly, what it does show is that you know he doesn't get to tell his narrative. He doesn't get to try and course correct how people see him. He tried to towards the latter years of his life, which is why I talk about in the book, and I really try and emphasize the 1972 election uh, when he was at one point one of the Democratic frontrunners. People don't often remember that George Wallace ran again for president in 1972. Many people know that he was the most successful third-party candidate of the 20th century in uh, 1968 when he ran against uh, Humphrey and Nixon. But in 1972, the Democratic Party almost elected him. The, you know, the one thing that took him down was a bullet from a failed assassin's gun. But his life after that, his life confined to a wheelchair, is something very few people, far and few between, ever really look at. And that's the part of his life where I call it, you know, the the, the third act of Wallace. Yeah. What do you do when you can't fix anything? You're watching it all happen. 
and you know everything that you wanted in life is basically destroyed right. and you what, were what a, do you do about that and you were a large catalyst for a lot of the things that you don't like seeing happen like you were one of the biggest engines for those things moving forward it's it's really incredible and i like how you at least for the third that i read how you kind of weaved wove weaving weaving woven how you moved between how you transitioned between uh the, the story about uh about the political operative art art brown right yeah art brown the 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 puerto rican liberty leaning uh uh, uh political operative no idea where that the 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 uh architect well if you that, go if you go farther the, in the book you'll learn he's part cuban so are you part Cuban? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. Well, because Art Brown is a fictitious character, Spike. Okay, well then, you know what? Then it's uh, purely I, fiction. I moved. That was me. That was a racial thing on my part, and I apologize for it. Um, <laughs> it's okay. He, uh, yeah, he. So I like how you weave between his story um, and between and between the the story of Wallace. So I'm I am definitely going to finish it because I, I was I was uh, I was really getting it, and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to add an app so I can have it read the rest of it to me while I'm doing stuff. And that just, that didn't happen for many reasons, but, um, I don't want to give away too much and I'll, I'll let you decide how much you want to, you want to do. But one thing I liked was his, the, uh, position between what he was doing in his career and what he actually did with like his actual voting himself. I don't know. Again, I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but, but tell me whatever you want to tell me about that particularly. Yeah. What, what I wanted to do with art was um, I, I wanted to shed a light on probably the most dangerous cottage industry in America. It's the full-time professional political consultant. Right. These are the people that sit between bankers, prostitutes, priests, and politicians. Right. And they're probably the most dangerous people in America. Because you don't often know their names, and when you do know their names, their names like Corey Lewandowski yep. uh, and David Axelrod. Yep. But what we established in America is this whole class of people that profit off constant campaigning. And it gets to the point where it becomes less about affecting change, it becomes less about issues, and it becomes more like becoming the personal PR hitman for not-so-saintly people. Right. And, um, you know, art was in, like, I'm, I'm not going to lie, like some of art's characteristics and stuff, like, you know, every writer puts a little bit of themselves into their main protagonist. But art was actually inspired by a lot of people I know. There are a lot of different people I've encountered, both good and bad, who I've taken pieces of to put in art because what I wanted people to understand is that these people are probably the closest thing to political sociopaths out there. They say one thing, they do one thing in public, but what they actually believe and what they do is quite contradictory to that. Because at the end of the day, it's that question that even politicians have to. And the thing that art really exemplifies throughout the book is that you could have named it has succeed in business and other forms of devil worship has succeed in college, anything. And it all comes down to what is success? Because if your definition of success is power, money, influence, comfort, whatever, you can get that. But right. there's a cost with it. And with art, what you see very early on is that he sacrificed his uh, his public image because, yeah, he might go vote one way and he might still do what he believes. But at the end of the day, that's not the person he wants people to know him as. And what he's done is he's taken the judgment and opinion of other people and he's substituted that with what he really does believe is right. Yeah. And I like I like how he he makes a uh he made a comparison that that i use often when talking about the and for the and I, i'm not sure if you know this i'm i'm an, an anarcho 
I guess anarcho capitalist, whatever. I'm an anarchist. I, I would have I, never thought I, so. I, I, oh I, uh, my gosh. What an, show is this? I thought an this anarchist, was trends. an anarchist Jew. Who ever heard of a thing? No. Um. Uh, and, and so I, I you know, I, I, people that that try to use the electoral process for liberty reasons, God bless you. It's a self defensive use of proxy violence. I'm fine with that. But I, but I like the uh, and I'm gonna butcher this because I don't remember exactly how it was said. But basically, he said, you know, that we're in a war and that you have people who, without really knowing much about what they're doing, are essentially using their bullets. Their, their votes as bullets to put in a gun to shoot at each other. Um, I, and again, I know I butchered that, but it was very much like it is people are without really spending much time on it, which is also frightening how little people think before they vote. They are really engaging in a sort of domestic warfare against their otherwise friends and neighbors who become their their you know adversaries and enemies on that one day every couple of years. And it's it, it was and, and so to become a person who engages in that as your career, whether you're a politician or especially, like you said, a, you know, a professional political, you know, hitman uh, operative. Operative's a good word because it's like a you're like a wartime. You are like a, some sort of a like a like a you're actually engaging in war and in, in 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 a form of almost violence. So how could you not lose yourself in that? Yeah, I don't know if you're much of a comic book guy, but one of my inspirations for the book is I was writing both, uh, you know, crafting the character of Art Brown, but really trying to analyze Wallace in a way I could, you know, conceptualize it is uh, Alan Moore's The Killing Joke. It's a story that basically kind of tells the de facto origin of the Joker. And what you learn in that book is that, you know, the Joker was a poor comedian who had a pregnant wife and he was just trying to make ends meet. And so one day he's told... Uh, by a couple gangsters that if he wears this mask and pretends to be a villain, they'll go rob a place and get out and then they'll give him some money and he'll move on with his life. Well, that doesn't end up happening because Batman shows up. Uh, Joker's wearing a funny red helmet and he's like, listen, Batman, this is all misunderstanding. Then Batman accidentally kicks him to a vat of acid and he becomes the Joker. And the running theme in that graphic novel is that the difference between the Joker and anybody is one bad day. And to a certain degree, that's kind of like what happened to Wallace. And that's how I think a lot of people um, tend to ignore a lot of things. What they need to understand is that, yeah, I think hum- human- humanity itself is depraved. We're sinful. We make problems. I think we're, we can all choose to be good or bad. Right. But for a lot of people, I think the difference between us and the villains that we hate and fear is just one bad day. And I think Wallace really does exemplify that tragedy to an extent art and many of the other characters in the book you see are much like that. The difference between them and one bad day is whether or not they win or lose an election, whether or not they get that donor or they have to go find money some other way, whether or not they're going to be unemployed or whether or not they're going to step up. It's very much that situation. And with George Wallace, I mean, he's a, he's a victim of his own bad luck but also a victim of his own self-inflicted decisions. Bad luck and being good at it. I mean, if he had sucked at being a uh, 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 you know racist politician, he just would have sucked. At, you know, he would have lost, and maybe a few people would remember his name. I'm sure there are plenty of other segregationist politicians that lost elections and whatever. So it, it's it's bad luck slash being good at being really a terrible person and and not just terrible person like the only way to be a terrible person is to be racist or you know to be in favor of say but just terrible person as in 
you are doing things that you personally believe to be horrible things that you know will cause and inflict massive amounts of pain so that I, I you think, can be yeah, I, I think I think anarcho-capitalists understand this more so than other people, but you know, I think there's this disconnect between actions and thoughts yeah. and results. And we tend to think that the things we do in life are just passive and they have no direct impact. But here's the thing, folks, that congressman you voted for, who you thought you were voting for a good pro-life congressman, ended up voting for something which ended up getting a bunch of kids killed. Yep. Like a lot of people like, are dead. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can say, well, that was him, but in a way, like we all have to share responsibility. What separates us from understanding that though is that we just don't want to. It's a it's a willful ignorance. And and it and it goes deeper than that. At this point, the many, many, many decades of the US murdering lots and lots and lots of people both here and abroad and putting putting them in cages and everything else. You can't at this point say, oh, man, I had no idea that voting for a Republican or Democrat or whatever would result in that. I didn't know that this down the line Republican politician who gave every indication that he would vote for whatever war his party supported as long as they were in power. I had no idea that would actually result in the continuation of, you know, these types of policies. So you truly have to if you if you and and I give this to Democrats even more because they'll be the ones to say, oh, we, you know, war is bad and these children and we're separating families and it's like yeah no all those terrible things are happening every single one of those things has happened with either the blessing of the democratic party when they're out of power despite their words or when they're in power doing the exact same thing but talking about rainbows and unicorns while they do it you know i said yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean this is one thing i really want to emphasize with art in the beginning of the book it takes place on the day of the 2016 election and right. the one thing that art brings up is that you know a lot of people they just think that this is the end of the world and that history started at the beginning of the cycle and right. as you go throughout the book and i i mean you have some ways to go before you really start to see how long art's been involved but he's at the point where even come 2016 he doesn't care like he's like i've seen this before yeah. i know history i've seen what happens nothing's going to change yeah. all i can do is take care of myself Right. So here you have an example of someone who's absolutely right about the circumstance and the situation, but he's absolutely wrong in the way he's handling it because he doesn't think that his actions have effect on anyone anymore. He's just there to take care of himself. No, exactly. Exactly. And that's, it, it's weird because he's engaging in like a lot of self care while also like continuing to engage in the thing that's causing him all the, all the, 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 um, the agita in the first place is very interesting and and so i like i said i can't wait to finish reading this probably tonight or tomorrow um and guys you guys need to read this as well now you actually have a crowdfunding campaign we have that in the show notes and i will will be promoting that um uh, in, on the website and stuff as well but um what is your what is your goal with the crowdfunding to get it published and so for like what do you have a timeline for how you want things to proceed so everyone else can read this? Yeah. Book? So the the really cool thing and I'm I'm happy to announce this on your show is that originally before I started the Indiegogo campaign I was going to completely finance the book myself. It was going to come out in March 2020 because that was when I would be able to afford everything. Because self publishing books like this, um, you know, traditional publishers aren't going to do it. It's not that right. you know. 
I, I didn't want to go through the process. I probably could have gotten a publisher for it, but I do know that the final product would not have been what I wanted. And if right. I'm going to go ahead and write something, I want to do that. So I started the crowdfunding campaign. I realized I need a thousand dollars to really put the work in to make this professionally well produced. The first book um, I did completely out of pocket, but it was my first self-published book. There's some things I liked and didn't like. So I want to make sure that for this one, it's as perfect as possible. So within 10 days, I have exceeded the amount of money that I initially needed. Oh, wow. But the great thing for you and everyone listening is that the Indiegogo campaign is still open for 49 days. So what this basically does is this allows you to not only get a whole bunch of exclusive limited stuff like signed posters, a credit in the book, a uh, signed copy of my first book, but your everything is massively discounted. So in a way, the goal's been met. I'm going to make this the best product ever I possibly could, but you can get this uh, a, a signed copy of the book extremely cheap by helping basically give me the capital to do it. So at this point, you can get everything from a signed first copy of my first book, a signed copy of this book, a signed limited edition poster. That's, I mean, it's it's going to be fun. And you can earn a credit in the book where I'll thank you in the acknowledgments for helping basically take the power from the big publishers and democratize it in a way. So that way stories like Art Brown's and, you know, the uh, and more of a more objective view of George Wallace can be told. And the yeah. really cool thing is that originally, like I said, we were going to do March 2020. Now, I'm happy to say that because of everyone's support, it'll be out in print and Kindle on August 30th. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So it'll be ready this summer. That's awesome. Yep. So guys, be sure to get your, you know, this book's coming out regardless. Go ahead and get it for a lot cheaper and also get maybe pick up some How to Succeed in Politics swag and a copy of, of uh, Stay Away from the Libertarians as well. I haven't read that, but just the cover alone makes me <laughs> want to read that. So uh, be sure to check that out. Now, Matt has a question for you. How, what was it like being the crying migrant baby on the cover of Time magazine? That wasn't me. That was my cousin Julio. Um, I was left behind because I didn't want to wake up early. So the coyotes left me in the train and I woke up in Los Angeles. So nice. I actually got the, the better end of the deal because of negligence. Right. So that was actually a turn. That was, that was fortune smiling on you is that you just got on the train. That's yeah, uh, like, that's... like Alejandro, you know, I don't know where he is. God bless him. But you know, you, you got to take care of number one or else. I mean, what else are you doing? You're ended up on the cover of Time magazine. And exactly. All the liberals are like, oh, look at the Mexican child. And it's like, no one cares about you. She's Alonso. there crying. She, they're there crying. And then Donald Trump's looking down at her like, yeah, well, I don't care about Julio. Um, so here's another thing. And this is Matt. Who I, I guess this is the thing I hate the most about him is that he drops things on me at the last second. He said, oh, you're going to talk about UBI with Remso, right? And I'm like. Why? And he said, because he's a supporter of UBI. And I went, yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that. So I just want, so I'm, I'm interested to hear the libertarian case for UBI because I'm not, I'm not seeing it, but I'm, I'm more than willing to listen to anyone about anything. (laughs) I wouldn't, I wouldn't even call myself a supporter of UBI, but the really funny thing is that, uh, you know, originally I came from more of a public policy economics background right. uh, in Washington. 
Like, you know, in, in Washington, here's the truth about economists. And maybe I'll write a book about how to succeed in economics and other forms of screwing over economies. But your <laughs> job in politics isn't necessarily to make people's lives better. It's just to make them less worse. Okay. And when it comes to things like UBI, um, you, you have certain people that, you know, it, it's basically a policy without a part without a party. It's a solution without a home. And because of that, many people have many different arguments for it. I understand what the Marxist, the socialist, and the conservative and the Austrian view for – well, actually, I wouldn't say Austrian. The Chicago school view. Yeah, she, yeah the, the Friedman view. Because yeah. Austrian, Austrianism doesn't allow that at all. But um, you know, basically, uh, back in the 80s, there were these professors, Cloward and Piven, and what they basically – thought of was they were they were like marxist anarchists anarcho-syndicalists right. they thought that the goal in order to bring about a worker-run stateless society was to basically blow up the welfare state to the point where the nation collapsed and you have a lot of people that think that ubi is a form of that my thing is this if you actually take ubi the way that people like milton friedman thomas Paine, and others uh such as from the uh some folks from the institute for humane studies put it was it basically allows everybody to win. For libertarians, it allows an elimination of 99% of the welfare state. Uh, you know, UBI is blanket, it's impersonal, it offers no excuses. So that's why some libertarians like it. Conservatives don't, uh, conservatives like it because what it does is it keeps people out of direct po- situations that lead to poverty. They're, therefore, they won't need other programs and you limit the size of government and then progressives like it because it covers things like income inequality. And it also brings down other factors that, you know, keep people in welfare. Uh, And, you know, that's that. So my, my, my support for UBI comes down to this. It's the worst, best, best, worst plan there is. My problem with it, however, is it's a utopian plan. And if yeah. implemented, it you know, you'd have to raise the amount per month per year that you'd be getting in terms of a uh, you know keeping up with inflation. Infinitely. But at the same time, yeah. you you know, when when is enough enough? You know, Andrew Yang, who's gonna be debating tomorrow night, is yep. saying twelve twelve thousand dollars a year. Like, what what the hell? What if I want thirty thousand dollars a year? What if I want a hundred thousand dollars a year? All you have to do is vote. And that's a dangerous thing. You're going to end up sabotaging yourself in the process. So I think UBI is the best, worst plan for more perfect people. We're not those people, and it's still a terrible plan. But if, let's say, we were to start it like in my home state of Virginia, for example, if a politician in Virginia said we're going to go ahead and eliminate all state-level welfare programs and instead implement UBI, I'd probably vote for that. So there you get a bit tricky about how you get to those situations. So that's 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 my gimmick about it. Yeah, I, I there's definitely an argument to be made that it would be better than welfare. Um, I mean, the and, clap is better than chlamydia, right? That yeah. Well, I think the clap is chlamydia. Anyway, the well, no, clap's gonorrhea. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, it's whatever. better than it's better than AIDS. Yeah, no, I, I get it. That would and, know. And I know, I know, Friedman made his case with the the, the negative income tax and things like that. So I, I I get it. I think that I mean, obviously, when you're an anarchist, you don't want universal basic income. But I I, I get the the case that it's better than the current thing. One of the it was funny, one of the most scathing indictments of UBI that I ever listened to was on YouTube, and it was from a communist who was saying. <laughs> 
if you if you yeah he said if you implement ubi you are entrenching capitalism really corporatism but you're you are entrenching the wealthy being here and saying we own this here's money so you can live but we definitely own this and it eliminates the ability of the it, it eliminates the uh uh um What's the word they like to use? The solidarity of the working class. It it, it guarantees there's not going to be any public ownership of a damn thing. And it, it in in their mind, it, it's it's the uh, the perfect ending of of the what they call the capitalist welfare state. And I thought, okay, well, that's a leftist argument against it. My argument against it is um, you are putting government in charge of deciding how much money everyone needs every year, and that's the market isn't going to simply shrug that off like the costs are going to be born into the rest of the market. And there's going to be this quickly exponentially escalating uh, battle between the price ceiling price floor of just living and how much money you can get from the state coupled with the ever growing burdensome debt that comes with that. So I think it's like you said for, for a, for a, for a better people than us, could you make that work? Yeah, but you could make a communism work or you could make, you know, well, com- communism like, couldn't work because communism is involuntary. I mean, what? that's the biggest thing with UBI um, to, to a certain degree, you can kind of opt and opt out because you know, the, the, the best plan I've seen for UBI is you eliminate the income tax, which basically disincentivizes people to work and you put a value added tax. So you feel it's based off consumable goods. We call it the fair tax right. in the, you know, in, in Europe and North America. And, um, you know, with people like Yang, and I'm going to refer to Yang because he's really the one kind of driving the UBI conversation right now. He, he definitely is. is yeah. Said, yeah. So like right now, like he basically said, if you can opt in for UBI and what that does, is that prevents you from accessing any form of entitlement out there, all of them. So once you're in, you're in, or you could get your housing and your WIC and your food stamps and your unemployment, or you could get this. So he makes it, you know, it's, it's a bit unfair to a certain degree. It's an all or nothing type of deal. And, uh, you know, you know, the one thing is, however, like in a communist society, you're going to have to, you know, call communism relies on violence. You're going to have to, you know, join the proletariat worker class by any means necessary or die. Whereas with UBI, uh, you've got some more room to move around. So, oh yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's, it's not, I think the thing is though, like you could be a communist in that Simpson, in that system and not like it or like it. But the thing is like, (laughs) I think the biggest problem with economics, I think this is my one criticism of the Austrian school is that we assume that everyone everywhere is already aware of this and they understand it. And even if they did understand it, they would like it. The problem that is the truth is that if let's say I could snap my fingers like Thanos and create a libertarian society overnight, tomorrow there would be people that crave for government. And within two days, there would be a collective of people taxing each other. Oh yeah. 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 No, we have right now is we have a massive amount of people in working communities throughout the country who are one bad day away from not paying their bills because a robot took their job and what's going to happen they're going to push for even worse stuff. And that, and that's the thing. So, and I, and, and I tell people that when they're like, yeah, well you want anarchy. How realistic is that? And I'm like, right now, not at all. Uh, my, you know, if, and I, I use the snap my finger, if I could snap my finger and government goes away, everyone is immediately going to try to work to make a new government. More than likely, historically, that will be an even worse government than what I got rid of by snapping my finger. So, 
you know, my thing isn't even like, a, let's try to make anarchy today. My thing is more of a, I cannot morally accept the idea that the state is a justifiable a thing that I can justify. And so I'm going to try to talk with people about why I think that is and how we can try to work to create something that looks more like a voluntary society. But the idea that like anarchy is going to happen, you know, anarchy will win. I, that historically is not true. <laughs> like anarchy winning is not usually what happens. So, um, so that, that's my thing on that. But um, I, I, I want to ask you uh, now you're, you're going to, you're, did you vote for Donald Trump? In 2016? Yeah. No. Are you, but you're going to vote for him. You, you're planning on voting for Trump? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to give you exactly I mean, 30. Maybe. I like Kim Ruff in the Libertarian Party. I like but Kim I also Ruff. usually don't vote. So, you know, it's funny. The last two elections <laughs> where I said I was going to go vote in the general, I was like really gung ho. I'm like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to do it. Then I pull up in my car. I look at like, you know, the little uh, League of Women's Voters people. And then I'm like, I'm going to go back to sleep now. And I just go home. So you're so this could go one of many ways. You could vote for Trump. You could vote for the rough Phillips ticket or you could just like sleep in that day. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to pretend you're a Trump supporter. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to sell uh, this libertarian audience on the libertarian case on voting for Trump. Good luck. What we've done is what we what Trump has done is he's exposed the deep state, the bureaucratic state, and essentially what now is happening is people are questioning all major institutions. This is so vital for the importance of a massive democracy, especially when you look at something such as the United States. And what we've done is we've gone ahead and evaluate the war state, the bureaucratic state, the criminal justice state, and what this is the current doing is bringing back power to the regular voting class, whether left or right, and forcing them to actually look at localist uh, solutions, which do go ahead and they enforce Jeffersonian democracy or agorist principles. So essentially what Trump has done is made buzzers, 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 buzzers down, buzzers down. The judges, <laughs> the judges were looking for, he's going, this is the same post-it note. He's going to trigger a revolt that will end up tearing down the government leading to an eventual, eventual anarchist utopia. Eventual anarchist utopia we were looking for the answer we were looking for yours was close <laughs> yours was close I'm i was gonna, just I, throwing out shit at one point i'm like I, I, then maybe maybe they'll take me seriously i'm not gonna lie that was pretty close to 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 well this just says you're a mexican but i this is pretty that was pretty close to your i'm gonna get more post-it notes I, I think that went well um i was okay with that answer i'm still not voting for him but i was i i, I think we came close to what the judges wanted. And um, I, there's no money here. But if there was, I'd give it to you. No, you wouldn't, you. No, I would definitely not. But I, what, here's what I will do. Is I will continue to, to, to promote your book. I will definitely finish reading it. Uh, Remzo, I had a, I'm, you're definitely coming back on. And we're probably I, just going to have an episode where we just like bash Matt. And so I'll have like a picture. I like you so much more than I like him. Like we're going to have a picture of Matt and it'll just be like, Oh, Matt. And then, you know, like the children, think of the children. Well, that's why I would do it. I mean, that's really the only reason I even do this show is the children. Mm. I mean, honestly, who's messaging? It's probably Matt. Is that Matt? What a little bitch. It was not, but, um, Remzo, before I let you go, 
I just want to give you a chance to give any final thoughts, anything that you, anything that you uh, you want to say about anything, anything you want to plug, anything upcoming that you got going on. Tell us about your podcast, whatever you want to say. You have as much time as you want. If it goes on too long, I may just go to the bathroom and come back. But uh, Remso Martinez, the floor is yours. Yeah, so folks, this uh, this book has succeeded in politics and other forms of devil worship. It's a dark comedy that blends both a fictional narrative of the problems we're facing today and a nonfiction narrative of what was going on during one of the most tumultuous years in American history. And if you learn nothing more than just a few interesting facts about how the political class works and this new cottage industry of professional political consultants and the politicians they breed, it's that we need to treat each other better and that we ultimately need to ask ourselves this question. What is the cost of success of our humanity is the price in the process it's available in kindle and print august 30th on amazon barnes and noble online we have johnny adams from blast off with johnny rocket from launchpad media narrating the audiobook which should be out in october just that's so cool (laughs) why i love it i had no idea that's so cool yeah, John, Johnny's been a friend of mine for years. He taught me how to podcast when I was back in college. And when I think of like the perfect voice to carry through this book, yeah. someone who can be both self-loathing, but also hilarious as hell, dark and serious, but incredibly ridiculous and funny, but just keep a captive reader engaged. I couldn't have thought of anyone better than That is Johnny. so cool. That is awesome. That is awesome. Well, thank you again. We have a final comment here. Jacob LaBelle says uh this guy would make a great cell phone cell phone salesman you know what's funny i actually used to sell bags of chinese made makeup business to business i mean that's essentially the same thing it was so much better than politics because at least that was an honest job because if you want it you can buy it and if not no one's going to force you to buy the chinese makeup. yeah like you're getting something out of it i can't say if it was good or not but at least you're getting something out of it it's mostly ash it's mostly ash but it's, it's chinese ash so that's good uh chris reynolds uh just chimed in asking what's the book uh we'll have that in the show notes uh but it's called uh how to succeed in politics and other forms of devil worship um and then you can obviously watch this show again uh remso you are an angel of a man and I hope no one else has called you that before. I want this to be the first time you've heard that. Spike, you're my one and only, and I appreciate you. Yeah, you are definitely, this is sort of like an open relationship, and I'm really happy about it. Um, I can't I a, be exclusive. Yeah, no, well, I'm I'm married. So, I mean, it's going to be complicated. I'm not going to lie. We can agree that. Yeah. Well, this is, I am in Canada right now. That's why when you were saying before, like, the woman that got in trouble in Canada, I'm like, are we, are we okay here? Um, but, uh <laughs> Like, what are we, like, I'm just summering here, guys. Like, I just, I'll go home if there's a problem. Um, anyway, so thank you again for coming in. Stick around. I'm going to talk with you during the intro or during the outro or the intro. Um, guys, thank you again for tuning in to my fellow Americans. I love each and every one of you individually. Be sure to tune in tomorrow where we're having a special Thursday night episode of, I think we're calling it the muddied waters of freedom, but maybe it's the writer's block. My fellow writer's block of Americans. I'm not sure what we're calling it, but basically Matt and I are going to be live streaming the uh, Democratic debate and laughing at everyone. Um, So be sure to tune into that Thursday at, I think, 8, whenever the debate starts. We'll be doing that right here on Muddy Waters Media. Uh, Be sure to tune in Friday night for Shabbat Shalom. It's Jason Lyon. 
with uh, Mr. America, the bearded truth. He's not Jewish, but it is Shabbat. <laughs> so just watch it anyway. And uh, then have a great weekend. And then next week is the one year anniversary of my fellow Americans. And I don't know who I have on as a guest. It might just be me because that's really, it's really about me. But we'll find out together. But be sure to tune in Monday for Mr. America, the Bearded Truth, the non-Shabbat episode. Uh, tune in Tuesday night for uh, the Muddy Waters of Freedom with me and Matt Wright as we parse through the week's news. And then join us right here next week, Wednesday night, probably still in Canada, for my fellow Americans. I have no idea what I'm going to do. But it's going to be great. Thank you again for tuning in. I love you so much. God bless you.